uh, first reading for this evening is from Isaiah 61. It's on page six of your zine, if you're following along. Uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance from, of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And the second reading is from uh, Matthew 5, verses 1 to 16. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. So, would you please stand? We're going to respond to this word with the words of the ancient Apostles' Creed, saying together these words on page 8. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Would you remain standing? Over the page is Psalm 32, and we realised that we couldn't sing, and then we decided at that point to recapture the ancient practice of saying psalms together. Um, these are songs. Now, we can't sing them, but we can say them. 
And we chose this particular psalm because it begins with, blessed are the ones, same as, uh, as you'll see in the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but here it's blessed are the ones whose sins are forgiven. So together, with one voice, let us with delight say this psalm of David. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you archers. Sing, all you upright in heart. This is God's word. Would you please be seated? It almost hurts to read that last line, sing, all you upright in heart. Hey, uh, I was looking at the Sermon on the Mount well, for several weeks now, and if you look on page 7, uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, I think I'm going to spend the entire series, maybe the, my entire life, trying to work out what that means. Blessed are the meek, for they will... Don't mishear it. Don't mishear it. They will inherit the earth. It's from a psalm. I'm not sure if I've got the answer for you today. But, you know, there's a little challenge for you over nine weeks. Work out what you think that means. I'm going to pray. Father, give us new eyes to see, new ears to hear, new hearts that are willing to follow Jesus. We're here now in this place. We thank you for bringing us together, for keeping us safe through the season, and for teaching us by your Spirit. Do the same thing now, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we are here, and what a year. In case you didn't know, we just hit halfway. Halfway through 2020. This is part of the race marked out for us as we follow Jesus, one foot in front of the other, as we said last week. Don't know if you saw the tweet that went viral last month that went like this. Future academics and future historians will be asked which quarter of 2020 they specialised in. We live in this world and no other. It's a world of bushfires and of viruses. It's a world of compromised leadership, no doubt. It's a world of racism and looting. 
to a world of sin and suffering and of death itself. Who doesn't long for something better? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Who doesn't long for something better? Dr. John Dixon, coming here in three weeks' time, says this. He says, anyone who has ever wished for the world to become a better place has, in some sense, wished for the kingdom of God. That's in the life of Jesus' course. John will run for your friends. It's worth saying that most people don't look twice at Jesus. Many won't. Most will take one look, meaning they like the idea of Jesus and they love it when Jesus can be enlisted for their own causes and especially when he fits into my ideas of happiness and morality. But to look twice, in other words, to come back and properly examine him, I might end up being challenged. My cherished notions and prejudices. I think I'm right in saying that. The life of Jesus, of course, you'll hear about next week, is your friends looking twice. Reading the Sermon on the Mount is looking twice at Jesus, thrice, four times, five times, spending a life yoked to Jesus Christ, learning what it means to follow after him, to lift your burdens, it is, of course, only three chapters of the Bible, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a 10-minute read. It's a bus ride, if you're willing to get on a bus. Most likely, the original sermon perhaps lasted all day. What we have here is the highlights. It's the second thing Jesus says in Matthew, the second thing Jesus says in his ministry, according to Matthew. Do you know what the first thing is? It has influenced society possibly more than any other piece of writing, save maybe the Ten Commandments and probably not even the Ten Commandments. It's a dangerous and controversial sermon, very dangerous, very controversial. Author Anne Dillard reckons we're too soft in church. She writes this, It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. It's dangerous to come to church. You know, your life might change. You'll need a crash helmet for the Sermon on the Mount. Not literally, of course. It is short and sharp, challenging and comforting. It'll take you down and lift you up again. New. It is hard-hitting, and that's because there's no such thing as comfortable Christianity or convenient Christianity. I don't know if you know the challenge of G.K. Chesterton, and you'll hear this quote several times during the series. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. Rather, it has been found difficult and left untried. The Sermon on the Mount is not the full story. You've got to go to the cross of Jesus for that and his resurrection, and the promise of his return, but it is about discipleship now. It's about being a human in God's world. It's about being human in this world. But the best thing is we get to examine how to live our lives in light of God the Creator, in light of Jesus our Saviour, and in light of the coming kingdom. We get to ask, how shall I live? Sun up to sun down, day in, day out. 
what is required of me from God. And you'll see in a moment, how do I live a happy life? And that has to do with the word bless there, the one that Jesus uses and how it's translated from the original language. We'll come back to that in a moment. Today we have the Beatitudes, which if you cast your eye on page 7, are from verses 3 to 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are they who. One writer said this, we can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plough in a field. We can compare the work of the Beatitudes to that of a plough in the fields, drawn along with determination. It drives the sharp edge of the plowshare into the earth and carves out, as the poets say, a deep wound, a broad furrow. In the same way as the plough, the word of the Beatitudes penetrates us with the power of the Holy Spirit in order to break up our interior soul. Do you like that? To break up our interior soul. It cuts through with the sharp edge of trials and with the struggles it provokes, it overturns our ideas and projects, reverses the obvious, thwarts our desires and bewilders us, leaving us poor and naked before God, ready to receive him. All of this in order to prepare a place within us for the seed of new life. See, if I want the seed of new life in me, then I'm happy for a plough to break up our interior soul. I'd be happy about that sort of pain if I thought something beautiful would grow from it. Lots of people read the Sermon on the Mount and think, oh, it's not the gospel, we've got to take people to the gospel. But I have a friend who became a Christian by reading the Sermon on the Mount. He said it was like looking into the eyes of God and falling in, reading these words. I know another guy who became a Christian when he read in Matthew chapter 5, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. He said, I can trust Jesus because everybody else, especially with human sexuality, changes the goalposts. But he said, I get the feeling Jesus doesn't want to do that. It's not his thing. So he said, I wanted to trust him. So today we begin a series, uh, and the outline's on page 10. Three questions from Matthew 5, 1 to 17. Number one, what does it mean to be blessed? Number two, who makes up the set blessed? Because I hope that I'm in that set, you see. And lastly, what does it mean for us? Firstly, what does it mean to be blessed? Well, to be blessed here is to have a favoured life. Who does the Lord look upon and say, this is good? The word blessed here means happy, you know, but not shallow happy, a deeper happiness. It means blissful, fortunate, uh, or flourishing. And people in Jesus' time had different versions of what this blessedness might look like. For Jesus, of course, it's to receive all the good things that God promises. The kingdom of God, for example. So, I could say that to be blessed is to be the lucky one, the enviable one, or the fortunate one but we don't believe in luck, we don't encourage envy, and we don't rely on fortune. So we'll have to stay with the word blessed. There's a huge theme of blessing through the Old Testament. 
For example, God blessed the man and the woman in creation and they received a curse when they sinned. The promise of that curse being reversed comes perhaps as a benchmark as God's covenant to Abraham, which is all about God blessing the world again. And to disobey God and the covenant is to be cursed. And that's what the exile is, the people of God in exile. And in fact, the exile uh, is potentially the context of Jesus' words, uh, Israel under Roman occupation, hungry for God's kingdom come, seeking to be comforted, Isaiah 40, uh, wanting the kingdom of God and, 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 and yearning to see him. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, it meant something to them. They didn't have to sort of guess what it meant. Now, all of that's true about the Old Testament. But the word Jesus uses here is different from the blessing curse word. Um, it may just be as simple as to be blessed is to live the flourishing life. You know, you've got a, a flourishing life if you are poor in spirit, you know, depressed in your inner being. Uh, it could mean something like the happy life or the life people want. Jesus says you've got the life others will want if you're the meek. See. To experience shalom. Blessed are you could mean you are in a good place if you are dot, 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 dot. You're in a good place. You're in the good place. You're in the right spot if you mourn, for example. Here, to be blessed is to be showered with the mercy and grace of God. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I reckon you could argue that most things Australians do is about trying, mostly it's about us trying to be blessed, trying to get good things, <laughs> trying to live the happy life. If you're a Facebook friend of mine, uh, you'll see an article I put up from Mamma Mia this afternoon where a woman, I don't want, if you read it, and if you're a Facebook friend of mine and you've if you're not, become one, and then you'll find it. But, um, you know, I'm looking for friends. I, I, I don't have enough, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, extraordinary article from a woman. From, I, don't, I, don't, I don't want you to read the article with any judgment. Uh, we don't know what the writer has gone through. But she says, I've, I've cracked the happiness code. They're her words. I've cracked the happiness code. She said, I was married. I had two or three kids, and I had a full-time job. So I had a full-time job, full-time with the kids, and full-time with a husband that was probably quite difficult, I don't know. And she said, I cracked the happiness code. What I did was I made sure that all of them were four days a week. So she said, I left my husband of 10 years. I got a new partner who I'm happy with. I spent four days with him, uh, and he goes back to his home. I spent four days with the kids. They go back to their father, who they like being with. And I, got four, I went down to four days a week work. And she said, this might not work for everybody, but I've done it. She said, I've cracked the happiness code. It's quite a fascinating little article. I think not just about what she thinks, but I think part of the reason why the article will, will be read is because in some sense she captures something of the Australian mind of just trying to order your life so that you're happy or free or, or, or you've cracked the happiness code. So Australians might say, blessed are those who are happy at work. Blessed are those with a stable income. Blessed are those who own Sydney property. In fact, I reckon you could tell a lot of people's understanding of the blessed life or a happy life by what they say to their kids when their kids are 15 and not doing the work they need to do. 
I'm just telling you right now, if you want a job, if you want the income, if you want, if you want, if you want, this is the main thing, just go get that. Uh, one could say, blessed are those who are in joyful marriages as opposed to conflicted ones. And some might say, blessed are those who have sex, money, or things. We want to be the fortunate one. But what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So countercultural. Of course, the text, Jesus says what the blessing is. Verse 3, it's to receive the kingdom of God. Not everyone wants it. Four, it's to be comforted. That's from Isaiah 40. Verse 5, it's to inherit the earth, the meek. Verse 6, it's to be filled. I love that verb. You're going to hear more of that from me over the next five years. It's in receiving mercy. It's in seeing God, verse 8. It's in being called the children of God, those peacemakers. And great is your reward in heaven, you who are persecuted and insulted because of me. Jesus is saying that blessing is right here and now. In my arrival, uh, you can be blessed. There's question number one. Question number two, who makes up the set of those who are blessed? And I think the answer is, it's for those who long. Those who long for God to come and change things. The reason I say that is because Many in Israel knew that they had sinned and they were living amongst the people who were broken and a world that was divided. They were poor in spirit. He's not talking about clinical depression here. That's worth just talking about and saying there's, that help is, is needed. You know, seeing a GP is needed with clinical depression. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying people who sort of understand the situation of their own lives and of the world in which they live, and they're like down about it. They know it shouldn't be this way. Some in Israel were uh, mourning their loss in their homeless state, hungry under the uh, oppression of a Roman occupier. They were hungry for righteousness, desperate to see God enthroned as king, longing to see his kingdom come, they wanted the prayer to be answered, may your will be done right here on earth as it currently is in heaven. They wanted an answer to that prayer. They prayed that prayer. Jesus taught them to pray that prayer in Matthew chapter 6. According to Jesus, that lot, they're the blessed ones. And there are all categories in the Old Testament to describe someone who laments the sin of the land and is hungry for God to do something about it. Many of the Beatitudes are quotes from the Old Testament. Look down at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's straight from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 61, of the Messiah, written 700 years before Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, says this figure, looming over history. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the Brokenhearted, the ones poor in spirit, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, and to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Blessed are you who have ashes mourning and a spirit of despair, because yours is the crown, yours the oil, and yours the garment of praise. Amen? 
They are about to get what God promised in Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God, and speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And this is Jesus speaking to Israel. Jesus knew the words of the prophet Isaiah, and he knew that the Israelites, hungry for God to act, knew these words. They knew God's words in Isaiah 66. These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Wait to hear how that's translated in the King James Version. I'm coming to that. The people who Jesus spoke to knew the story of Moses too. That's why he goes up on a mountainside like Moses went up Sinai to teach them how to be the people of God. He comes not with Torah, but speaking to the heart. He speaks tenderly to Israel and says, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The heart is what matters. And that's why what's done in secret in Matthew 6 will be important. What's done in secret, my heavenly, your heavenly Father sees it. That's why in chapter 5, verse 27, that's why he talks about adultery in the heart, not just with the body. That's why he says, chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is saying to the hungry, the poor, the stateless, to the faithful, the pure heart, Israelites, simply desperate for God to come, your time is now. You are in the set called blessed. You are, and not others. Why? Because you've come to terms with the grievous nature of your own sin. You've realized your own need, and you're hungry for a change of heart, personally, locally, and globally. And maybe there are seasons like the one you're seeing now on, on social media where this sense that things aren't right and need to change globally is something people are in touch with. But it will pass and we'll go back to being Australian. Do you long for God's kingdom? Third and finally, what will it mean for us? It will mean that a disciple of Jesus Christ will need to be countercultural. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And you need to stay countercultural. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Don't lose your edge. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You've become exactly like every other Australian. You see, don't do that. You're the salt of the earth. Jesus says to his disciples. And verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. Um, you know, you sort of look around, turn around and look for someone important. You are the light of the world. Sometimes we feel like dim lights, but even a dim light dispels darkness in a room with no other light. You are the light of the world. Jesus says, and I love this obvious thing, a town, a city built on a hill can't be hidden. You could try. I noticed the guy who wrapped whole monuments up as an art 
he died like last week or two weeks ago, there was an attempt to hide a city on a hill. That artist, you know what I'm talking about? Jesus says, no, not true. You've got a city on a hill, you can't hide it. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. No, instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And Jesus says, do all that in this world. Even, for example, if people insult you or persecute you or say false things about you because of me. I think it's natural for Australians to think, blessed are the strong at heart, blessed are the confident, blessed are those who take care of themselves. You could say, blessed are the lifters and not the leaners. I mean, there'd be people who'd say that. Blessed are the correct, especially those correct all the time. Blessed are the positive types, the one who, who think that the glass is half full. You know this, don't you, that there's churches all across the world that make a habit of building their ministries on the principles I just outlined. Here's how to be happy, strong at heart, confident, take care of yourselves, be positive. But Jesus goes the opposite. Fascinating. Bishop Tom Wright was very helpful for me in this. He recalled a movie that he saw many years ago. I've not seen it, although half the people at 8.30 have seen it. I think I might. It's called The Sound Barrier. Somebody tell me later what platform I can watch that on. In the movie, it's about the first test pilots to break the sound barrier. No plane had ever flown faster than the speed of sound. No human, therefore, had been any faster than the speed of sound. And every plane that got close to the speed of sound lost control of the steering and disintegrated uh, and collapsed to the earth. At the climax of the movie, one hero, one test pilot, took a counterintuitive guess. It seemed that every time the plane hit the sound barrier and wobbled, the temptation was to pull the, what do you call this, Someone tell me, who's a pilot? What's the word? Stick. That guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> he's a Qantas pilot. May the Lord bring those planes back in the air. May we all travel again. Blessed are those who travel. See. <laughs> the temptation was to take the stick and, and, and pull forward. Uh, uh, but he realized, or thought intuitively, against his, 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 his instincts, that the controls might work backwards. So in the movie, with great daring, the pilot approached the sound barrier. Instead of pulling the stick up, he thrust it forward, which would normally make the plane go into a nosedive, but his hunch was correct. He thrust the stick forward, and the plane's nose lifted, and he went faster than any human being had been before him. Now, apparently the story is entirely apocryphal and physically inaccurate. However, if it were accurate, it's a graphic illustration of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is taking the normal stick, the normal controls, and making them working backwards. And that's because he takes two things seriously. One, God. Two, this broken world. God coming to this broken world to redeem it. Take seriously only one of those two things and you will not receive the blessing because you won't want it. 
Jesus is taking his people through the sound barrier to a new place, somewhere they'd never been before. I want the ground broken up, the soil of my heart. Something new and different. The gospel starts with you being unhappy. Not just generally unhappy, but unhappy about the way things are because you come up against the holiness of God and you're thirsty for God to come and change things. This is called repentance. You know what the first thing Jesus said in Matthew's gospel? Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. C.S. Lewis said this process of surrender, that's what repentance is, surrender. This process of surrender, this full movement astern is what Christians call repentance. It's not full steam ahead, that's the Australian way. Perhaps self-help, looking ahead with positivity. It's full steam astern, which is turning your boat around and looking to Jesus Christ and being a part of the kingdom uh, that he is growing on earth. And so you could say, and look up at me for this moment, hello, you've got to stick in front of your life when the inclination is to hurt like Jesus we choose to heal. When the inclination is to take like Jesus we give. When the inclination is to pretend everything's okay, we mourn and grieve as those who know that this is a fallen world. When the implication, when the inclination is to have conflict for conflict's sake, we are peacemakers. When the inclination is to self-preservation, we choose the cross. Are you hungry for God to bless this broken world, mourning for this divided world, wanting God's blessings? Are you part of that change? The kingdom of God is for those who long I had a simple exchange in New York City uh, on uh, 2nd Avenue and 17th Street uh, when I lived in New York City. My church was taking blankets to the homeless in the dead of winter. We walked up to a guy and said, uh, would you like a blanket? And he replied, I can still hear his voice in my mind. He replied saying, now why would I say no to something I need? That's wisdom, you see. It's the wisdom Jesus is offering. We need forgiveness. We need God to come. Why would I say no to something I need? Notice Jesus is not saying at this point, blessed are you who help the poor in spirit. That might be a great thing. It's not what Jesus is saying here. He says you need to be in the set called poor in spirit. This is where the gospel starts. Isaiah 66 in the King James Version. But to this man I will look, says the Lord, even to him that is poor, and of contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. But let me tell you where the gospel takes you. It takes you to Jesus, to his life. It takes you to the cross of Jesus Christ, and to the resurrection and the kingdom of God he brings. It takes you to the shalom offered, flourishing, peace. The apostle Paul says this, For your sakes Jesus became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Longing is a part of every human soul. We all do it, even if we don't admit it. Don't admit it. But sometimes we locate that longing in things like four days with my family, four days with my... Four days. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom of God is for those who long for him and the wisdom he offers. Let's pray. Father, we want to take seriously 
you and we want to take seriously this broken world. There's plenty of people in our world today that take seriously this broken world. They know there's something wrong. They don't want to fight and advocate and see change. But many of them won't take seriously that there is a God who made it. There is a God who cares. There is a God who will act. And there's some of us that take you seriously and come to church and we pray and we worship. But we don't take seriously the brokenness of the world in which we live. I pray that you would help us to see um, the reality of our own lives, not to point fingers, but also to the reality of our uh, world in which we live and then yearn, long for your kingdom to come, long for your will to be done. And to the extent, Father, we find ourselves mourning or, or poor in spirit or hungry, we pray that you would fill us and satisfy us with the truth of your gospel ahead of your return when you'll fill heaven and earth with the knowledge of your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.